Welcome to Beyond the Game, Wealth Mastery for Athletes. I'm your host, Chris Benson, joined by nine-year NFL vet, Alec Ogletree. Beyond the Game is a podcast where we will provide a playbook for financial growth, both on and off the field. Join us each week as we have an in-depth conversation with other professional athletes who've mastered the art of wealth creation. They're going to share their triumphs, setbacks, and maybe some lessons learned so you don't make the same mistakes. Join us. We think you're going to enjoy it. All right, guys, welcome to Beyond the Game. Today we had Craig Brown, who is a partner at NKSFB. They're one of the largest business management firms in the world. Craig dropped a lot of wisdom on us. I I love what he most talked about is a framework in which you can filter decisions. And he talks about it from the perspective of an athlete, but I think this is applicable to anybody um, who's in a uh, opportunity where deals or opportunities are being presented to them. I mean, the big ones he talks about is understanding risk versus reward. Um, and the, the, the second part of it is cash flow versus cash burn, which I love. It's simple, not easy things. So the idea that understanding how much you burn on a monthly basis and how much cash flow from investments you have to have to cover that to sustain that lifestyle forever. So a lot of great wisdom from Craig today. I think you guys are going to love the episode. Um, We're going to get into it uh, with him on a number of different topics, uh, hearing his story, how he got from professional baseball player into the business management world, and then some of the the resources and tools that he uses with his clients to help them think about how to manage their wealth beyond the game. So stick with us. Craig Brown, appreciate the time. Thanks for joining us today. Always a pleasure. Good to see you guys again. Yes, sir. Uh, yes, sir. I'm going to start today, if you don't mind, I'm going to take you back in time. When we were all young, well, Alex still is young. Craig, when you and I were young and probably a little bit more handsome. So it's it's 1998. You're just getting out of school, right? You're coming out of Tulane. You graduate in 98? Graduate in 98. All right. So you get out of school. You had a pretty good collegiate baseball career. You got drafted. In your mind's eye... Did you think you were going to make a professional career like that's how you're going to make your money? Did you think you were going to be a baseball player? No chance. I was <laughs> a and, and and that's that is that is 100% truly honest. So I was a I was a 32nd round draft pick by the Cleveland Indians and I was fortunate enough that uh my best friend um his father is uh, uh has recently passed away but is a was a Hall of Famer. Uh, Bruce Suter, um, his son, my best friend, was was my catcher at Tulane. And I remember Bruce told me, you know, he said, look, on every minor league team, you've got one or two guys that the organization thinks is going to make it. And they've got to put 23 guys, 23 or 24 guys on that team to build out a roster in order to get that guy ready to get to the big leagues. And you're one of those guys. And so um, I, I took that to heart. Especially going, you know, being drafted as late as I did. I mean, you know, in 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 hindsight and looking back on it, I feel very privileged to even have that opportunity because so many people kind of go into sports that they love and play with hopes of being able to say that they play professionally. And I was able to do that and enjoyed every second of the time I was there. But I had no kind of disillusions that I was going to be that guy. And so it was really kind of an opportunity for me to kind of slow step my way into the real world of getting, you know, a day-to-day nine to five job. But when I was sitting, you know, on the bus and, and 
taking those 14 hour road trips going from, you know, these backwoods town to backwoods town. Um, you know, I typically sat up at the front of the bus and was reading the Wall Street Journal and picking the brains of my coaches who would be talking about the stock market um, instead of sitting in the back of the bus playing cards or or hanging out and listening to uh, the CDs back then, you know. So um, it allowed me oh, to kind man. of take that journey. Take that. Yeah, you don't probably don't even know what a CD is, Alex, you know. So, oh, I do, I do. Uh, I was going to say, I was, I was just going to say, you know, you was kind of doing the opposite of what I was doing. You know, I like to play cars and – you know, sit back there. We listen to music and all that stuff like that. You know, <laughs> but you actually, you actually had a shot. You know, that's the difference. I knew I didn't. So, but it was a, you know, it was a good lesson for me. And and look, you had some, you had some superstars on that bus. You had, you know, Victor Martinez, who had, you know, a 15, 16 year career uh, in Major League Baseball. That that you know was a buddy of mine. You had CC Sabathia. You know, sitting on that bus, you know, as as the number one uh, pick of the of the Indians. So, you know, those were the guys that were the the couple guys that were on the team that everybody else was kind of getting them ready to to do what they do, and they did a great job of it. So that's so you had a class, which is yeah, that's it. You know, but look, it was it was a life lesson because you know, for me, I looked at it and saw that there's a lot of guys who, you know probably didn't have the same thoughts as me who really expected that they were going to get there and they were going to make it and, um, you know, didn't do all the prep, you know, probably that in hindsight, they probably wish they would have. And then the other thing that's really unique about it is if you think about it, it's not just making it, you know, and, and true, you know, this, you know, it's, it's not just getting there. You got to get to second contract in order to really have it be, be something that potentially doesn't, you know, come as a disadvantage to you, especially when you look at baseball, you have a lot of guys that, you know, if you think about it, if you get drafted, you know, out of college and you're 21, 22 years old, or even worse, you get drafted at a high school as a baseball player, you're 18 years old. And you, you know, if you're a high pick, you know, the, the organization is going to give you every opportunity to get the return on their investment because that's what they look at you as an investment. They gave you this money. They're trying to get a return on that investment, which is you getting to the big leagues and producing for them. And so it might be six, seven years, you know, eight years that a guy bounces around in the minor leagues, which then puts you at 25, 26, 27 years old, having never gone to college. You know, a lot of times those guys have started a family, you know. And so then what does it look like for them? You know, you're, you're either trying to go back to school as a 25, 26, 27 year old. Or like Brandon Whedon. World. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. Like Brandon Whedon. Exactly. Same same kind of deal. Yeah, yeah. No, I know it. I mean, I've I've always heard like stories and stuff about, you know, the baseball this and I know the the difficulty it is to to try to make it in that sport. And so, you know, for me, like when I when I talk to people, you know, about I'm like, yes, it's hard to make it to the NFL. Like, yes, it's it's very hard. But I'm like, if you do get opportunity to make it, yes, that opportunity was hard to get, but it's even harder just to stay in there. Like once you're in there, like you said, they they look at you as an investment. So yes, the guys that are the first rounders, whatever, yeah, they're gonna get, you know, more ample opportunity to, you know, kind of prove and show their worth or whatever. But at the same time, at some point it's like all right, you're not doing it for me. Like, <laughs> I got to cut ties, you know, yeah. at the end of the day. 
And, you, no, know, you, so always, that, you always say that, right? Like, you always talk about younger, faster, cheaper. Like, that's, yeah, that's I mean, what the chasing in the NFL, right? Younger, faster, and cheaper. They definitely, they definitely looking to replace you, for sure. So, so you can't – Okay, I mean to catch up. Go ahead, go ahead. No, no, I was just gonna say, you know, and so if you think about it, especially what the average career in the NFL is what three and a half years, and so it might be less now. Yeah, two, it's so like actually, two and a half, one and a half. I feel like now. And I was gonna say, so when you look at when you start taking guys that that you know are playing eight, nine, ten years. How long did you play, Trey? Nine. Nine. So when you start averaging out, if you've got guys that are playing 9, 10, 11, 12 years, right, then you've got some guys, if the average is three and a half, you've got some guys that are playing one, two years, right? One, two years, literally one or two years. And that's the thing, yeah. that mindset of like, as you said, like you you yourself, even though I still find it hard to believe because I feel like just the competitive, you like, hell no, I'm in I'm in the same class as them. I'm just as good as them. But I get it. Like I understand you know, that the aspect of it and but also the point of like where you said I I thought I was thinking, you know, outside of like, okay, I know this ain't gonna last forever, right? So I gotta do something. I gotta start thinking about what it's gonna look like for me after. You know, if this doesn't pan out and, you know, you had the courage enough to, you know, look yourself in the face and face that reality. But a lot of guys don't. They just, you know, they keep chasing it for however long they want. And which is fine. Like I never never tell anybody to give up on a dream or whatever. But at the same time, there is reality where, like, you have to come down and. You know, them bills are due. Everything's coming. You still, hey, you're not no little kid no more. You can't just be, you can't go back to mama house and go yep. sleep. You know, not, not as what you want to do. You know, so. I did play um, until they told me I couldn't play anymore. I, I kept yeah. going. I was grinding. <laughs> I was going to play as long as they let me keep coming and showing up. But at some yeah. point they were like, hey, look, okay. This has been fun. You're a nice guy, but we're going to yeah. go ahead and let you go on and do something else, you know? For and sure, so, for sure. But, you know, Chris, it brings up an interesting point. Let me ask you. Oh, sorry. Oh, ahead, sorry. I stepped on you. Go ahead. I was just going to say, where did that maturity come from for you? I mean, look, you're 22, 23, riding around the bus, right? And, and you're talking about the Wall Street Journal at the front of the bus with the coaches. Did that Was that foundational, mom, dad, how you grew up? Or was that just how you were wired? You were always thinking about, because, I mean, you're an analytical guy. You, you have a tax background. Where did that come from? So it's a really interesting question and, and, and brings up a really kind of cool story. So, you know, my parents were just hardworking professionals. My dad was a, was a senior person for the Department of Corrections, a suit and tie guy, but still a, a state employee. You know, my mom was a, uh, was a elementary school principal and then worked for the school district. Um, you know, had her doctorate, uh, but still, you know, a government employee. So you're not talking about having significant wealth or anything like that. Um, what happened was, so I played on the U.S. Uh, on the U.S. junior national team and national team, uh, USA Baseball. And um, at that point in time, you know, they're taking the top 18 kids in the country. I did think, okay, I'm going to be that guy. You know, I'm going and competing in these events and being selected as one of the top 18 guys. I thought I was that guy. The Olympics yeah. were in 96, and I didn't even get sniffed. 
for the <laughs> Olympic team. And so um, I knew at that point that, okay, there's some dudes out there that they think more highly of. And so I played the, the most prestigious college baseball summer league is the Cape Cod League. Wood Bats, right? In the Cape Cod League? Wood, absolutely. Wood Bat League. And that's where you really kind of prove your merit. So um, I played in the Cape Cod League after my freshman year and after my sophomore year. And interesting thing is when you go to college for, for baseball, you'll become draft eligible after your junior year, after your third year uh, of college. And so I said to myself, if I don't get drafted after my junior year, I need to figure out what the hell I'm going to do with my life because if you're somebody who's got a shot to make it, they're probably going to grab you after your junior year. So I went undrafted after my junior year. And at that point, I really started thinking, okay, what am I going to do? And so my other best friend's a guy named John Darsky. Um, and his dad was a, a really senior guy at Lehman Brothers um, in New York City. Lehman Brothers, uh, you know, they, they've made movies about it. The collapse of Lehman Brothers, one of the major Wall Street banks that went under. But his dad was a Dick Darsky is one of the most influential people in my life outside of my mom and dad. Um, and so he gave me the opportunity to come move up to to Westchester County where they lived and work at Lehman Brothers with him that summer. So instead of going back to the Cape where I had an opportunity to, I went to New York and worked at Lehman Brothers and spent the summer doing an extended internship there. And I got bitten by the financial bug um, big time. You know, I would ride into, you know, I'd take this hour ride in from from the cushy parts of Westchester into the city every day with with my buddy's dad. And he taught me some things that have stuck with me forever. You know, he told me, you're going to read uh, the Wall Street Journal every day. You don't have to read the entire Wall Street Journal, but you need to at least read the first paragraph, you know, of every uh, article that's in there, because that'll give you enough information about what that article is talking about. If it's something that interests you, keep reading. If it's not, move on to the next thing, but you'll at least have conversational understanding about what that article was speaking about. And so I'd ride in in the morning with him. I'd read the, the newspaper, uh, pick his brain, talk to him, just as kind of a father figure, not you know anything else. And it really kind of was the foundation for me from a business standpoint, uh, not only how he conducted himself business-wise, but to be at that level uh, and also living with him to see how he conducted himself as a family man and as a family person. You know, and that was the other thing that he told me was, you're moving into this house with us for the summer. We're going to treat you like family, which means that whatever happens in this house stays in this house. This is family business. Something that really stuck with me. You know, it's, it's, it's somebody who's had a major influence and impact on me. So that's really what got me kind of in that mindset of, okay, I know what I want to do whenever this this ride ends. I was fortunate enough having that I got drafted after my senior year, so I'd already graduated, so I had my degree. So it wasn't a situation like I was just talking about where you get guys who are, you know, uh, coming out of high school and then trying to figure out what they're going to do because they've got, you know, an advanced life at that point in time. Did, did that – I mean, like, because you came out of uh, – the pro leagues and essentially went right to Merrill, right? That, that was your first gig. I mean, quite honestly, I, I knew, you know, I, I, I felt like, you know, I was, I could see the handwriting on the wall. I was a guy that was being used as 
uh, a good mentor to the younger guys that were coming in because, you know, for the most part, I did things the right way. So I was someone, you know, that, that they would put the younger guys that they'd invested a lot of money in. So professional. Got to show them yeah. how to be a professional. Yeah, yeah. And so they still, they still good, do that you know, that, <laughs> that was good, but I was also interested in making some money, you know, and, and figuring out like, Hey, if yeah. you're not going to pay me to do this, then, then, <laughs> then let me go ahead and get on. So I actually yeah. started, um, I interviewed with Merrill Lynch and I was sitting there still on the Indians payroll, but I wasn't getting paid, but I still had my insurance, which was a big thing. And you had to wait 90 days to get your insurance picked up at Merrill. So it was, uh, I was, I was in the position where I was going to tell the Indians I was done. And I got the phone call from them telling me that, Appreciate you. It's been a fun time. And I was like, well, now that you said I had a mutual yeah. agreement to, to part ways you with each other. That, you got that, it. That was, that's so it's almost like if the girlfriend time. says, I want to break up with you. It's like, wait a second. No, no, no. I was going to break up with you. We need to make sure you know I quit this. So, you know. <laughs> so, that's, so we get it understood for sure. Yeah. Oh, that's that's interesting. That's cool. Um, Okay. So, yeah, you say you go to, you go to Merrill and – your first job there was what to do what like another interesting thing you bring up Alex because Alec because let me tell you man the it was so prideful to be able to say oh I, I work at Merrill Lynch because it's a firm that has you know real prestige it, you know not easy to get that not easy to get that that job and I go through I take all my exams get my you know series seven. Um, get all my licenses and they basically say, okay, here's a call sheet. Start smiling and dialing. And I was a glorified cold caller making, you know, $30,000 a year, minimum wage, you know, for all intents and purposes for the hours I was putting in. And I would just pick up that phone and cold call people every day, you know? And the majority of the time that I spent in this program they did a great job of teaching you how to sell, but they didn't really teach you how to actually manage money and invest the money for people. It was go bring it in, go bring it in. And so I brought it in. Now, mind you, this is 99 and 2000. And for people that, Chris, you haven't gotten to the point that you have gray hair. And if I actually had any left, mine would be gray. But, you know, 2000 was one of the worst years possible to be starting off in the in the financial services industry. The market went to hell in a handbasket. It was a financial crisis of 2000. Thankfully for me, you know, I brought in some some great clients, but I was terrified because I didn't know anything about investing their money to actually put that money to work. So I spent all of my time kind of doing everything other than investing their money. You know, it was looking at putting together budgets and helping them build credit or cleaning up credit. You know, when they were looking at buying a house, I was looking at where can we get the best rates? Maybe not just the rates that Merrill was was uh, you know offering and loans that they had to offer, but going outside of that and saying, you know, going on and they had this thing called LendingTree.com, where you could see what all the mortgage rates were. So I was looking at all of those and saying, hey, you know, you can get a mortgage from Chase Bank and it's going to be a lot less than what we can offer you. Let's do that. What that really was was allowing me to really build trust. Um, you know, with, with everybody that I was working with. And so when we came out of that crisis, they really, 
you know, kind of looked at me as a, as a trusted advisor as opposed to a salesperson, which really helped. And Craig, were you at Merrill? I know you were in the sports management division, but were you talking to just John Q. Public or were you focused on athletes right out of the gate? So great question, Chris. You know, what they basically tell you is you get your license and on day one, when you go into what they call production, you know, back then, I'm sure it's a higher number now. They said, you've got uh, 24 months to get $10 million of assets. You've got to get people to give you, you know, $10 million of their money to invest. And at that time, I was still living in New Orleans. Um, and I'm 25 years old. Don't my family, you know, gave you a background of kind of what my, my, my parents did and, and, and you know, uh, my upbringing and things like that. So I didn't have family money to be able to go out and get or friends of family to be able to go out and, and get their money. Um, you know, the reality is, as a, as a young African-American man, especially in the South, it was hard to go out and get uh, money from, you know, the affluent kind of uh, older white uh, families. And so I kind of. Still not super funny. easy. Yeah. Still, not, still super not easy. easy. Yeah. <laughs> so I went with what I knew, which was baseball. Right. So I started yeah. going after athletes. I figured I wanted to go after. Um, and so we had this thing on niche marketing, uh, uh, like a, a Saturday, Sunday sales uh, kind of training session at Merrill. And I went into there and you had to come up with what your niche market was going to be. And they made you think about it. And I said, I, you know, my niche market is going to be young, dumb and rich. And the guy laughed at me and he said, well, good luck finding those people. And I said, no, I think that what that describes is the professional athlete. They're all relatively young in age. So they're going to relate to me. Um, they're not dumb, meaning that they're non-intelligent. They're just non-experienced. Right. So that gives an opportunity to teach them. And then they're all, you know, even the lowest paid individual would be considered a highly paid individual uh, in the regular world. So that's what my niche is going to be. And so I put all of my time, effort and energy on going after those guys. And, you know, was fortunate enough. I signed my, my first, you know, the first guy I went after um, signed, you know, was ended up being the second pick in the draft, uh, in the baseball draft. The next year I got the number one overall pick, the number two pick, the 11th pick, the 12th pick and the 24th pick. And then the next year I had the number one overall pick. I had the number one overall pick four out of five years. And we get like six or seven guys every year. And there's a cautionary tale in this. Um, I'll tell you, it was started getting really easy to, to sign these guys because the families coming the year later would say, oh, you signed these people. So, yep. you know, you must be the guy. We'll go with you. Reality is I still didn't know crap, you know, but I was able to say, I work with this person, this person, this person, and this person. And that's the thing that, you know, I feel is, is uh, something that, that athletes and their families should really look out for, you know, a client roster, especially on the financial side where people keep their finances really private. And yeah. even people who may be in a position where their financial people have not done well by them, they're not going to tell anybody because they're embarrassed, you know, yeah. to be in that financial position. And so, they may tell you, oh, yeah, I'm with this guy. How's, how's everything going? Oh, it's going good. And so families will take that as an endorsement when in reality that person may not be doing a good job for you, you know. Mm -hmm. And so just because someone works with, 
you know, a who's who of athletes doesn't mean that they're doing a great job. Yeah. No, I agree with that. That's like, I just remember when I think about like just me coming out and just kind of that whole thing, like at that age, you know, 22, whatever, how old you are at that time, it's a lot being thrown at you at that time. A lot of this, a lot of the information that you're receiving is based on just your family, you know, because most of the time it's them that's in your ear, that's talking to you, you know, and if you're not, I guess if you're not really, I'm not necessarily savvy enough, but more so, I guess, experience in the sense of like, no, I can go ask, I can go ask around, I can go ask these people. A lot of times people just don't, I feel like they don't have that resource to maybe go to an outside source to ask them like, hey man, does this make sense? Like, and, and you know, try to try to get a different opinion or perspective, whatever you want to call it, you know, from different people. So I do, I do agree with you in the sense of like, yeah, like once you, once it start going, you know, people, they'll just go off just based off what you, like you said, oh, they signed such and such. They must be doing a good job. And reality is like, they really not. If you really, you know, peel back the layers of it and look at it, you're like, well, this may not be the best fit for me. And, and that's the thing, too. You got to find the best fit that's for you individually, you know, not right. necessarily like that. Yeah, they, they may have did them well, but it doesn't mean that's going to be the same outcome you're going to have because y'all are two no. different people. And, you, hey, you know, and you know Alex, the other Alex, the other thing is, you know, I always look at when someone says, oh, yeah, this is my, you know, I'm working with this advisor or that advisor and they work with A, B, C, D, E. Sometimes yeah. I'll sit there and say, OK, those all those guys are represented by the same agent, you know. Yeah. So is that the agent that's that's feeding these players to this advisor? Is it because that advisor does great work or is it because they just have a relationship, whether yeah. that's, you know, whether that's, you know, a personal relationship or that's a financial relationship, but either yeah. of those can be a conflict in terms of relying upon that person to, to say, Hey, this is who you should work with, you know? Agree, and, agree. And that's a real problem. And the other thing is, you know, like when you were coming up, coming out, did anyone say to you, here are the questions you should be asking. And here's the reason you should be asking those questions. Or was it kind of, left to you and your family to just go at it alone and kind of figure out, you know, yeah, what to ask. Uh, mostly, mostly it was just left to me and my family to ask. I think too, and I, and I say this too, is like when I think back to the mindset that I was in, like only thing I cared about was playing football. Like it wasn't even, like, yes, I cared about the money in a sense, but it was like, man, I'm going to see more money than I ever seen, you know, ever in my whole life, right? More than my family, like anybody that I know that I can just pick up the phone and call and be like, oh, have you ever made this? Like, no, I couldn't call somebody and, you know, kind of ask those questions like that. Um, It didn't mean that I didn't have people around me that, you know, possibly could have helped. But like I said, coming out, it was mostly left up to our family. And obviously you do the interviews and you go around asking people. And, you know, for me, it's well for everybody. I mean, it's that trust factor, obviously that you have to, you know, break down that wall. Like I want to be able to get up and make a phone call and be like, and feel comfortable asking that person, like whatever question may I have, 
whatever question I may have, you know, on my mind or whatever's going on, like I want to wake up knowing that I can actually call it and feel like they're going to give me a, a genuine answer and not feel like, oh, man, I don't want to ask this because uh, I don't want to sound stupid or whatever. You know, you, you kind of fall in that. And then, like I said, at that at, at that time, 22, 23, I'm like, man. I don't care what I really don't care what else happened really in it in a sense, you know, outside of me playing football. Like if it's not anything to do with me going out here on this field, like somebody else can kind of deal with that or whatever. I'll I'll get to it when I when I can, you know. But you and graduated kinda, from that, right? Like Oh yeah. Well yeah, then, I mean you live and you learn. You live and you learn and hopefully if you you know, blessed enough to for me, I was blessed enough to play nine years, so I seen a lot you know, throughout my years of playing and, and kind of transition, like even, like just even talk about like our relationship. I remember when we first met, <laughs> you was like, who first, you like, hey, you should, you, you start telling about his insurance policy. And I was like, hey, what the, what is he talking about? Like, I had no clue what he's, I'm like, why the hell would I buy some insurance for whatever person? I'm like, you like, no, nah, man, I'm trying to tell you, you know, but at the same time, it was my first time getting to know you. And again, the mental space of where, you know, each person is at in their life, I think is, I think is imperative that, you know, people like yourself who are in those position and any, any other position for whatever other thing you think, you got to be able to meet that person where they're at in their life and kind of understand, like, it's not that they don't want to go do the right thing. I think everybody has the 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 mindset to want to do the right thing but at the same time it's like man dude you telling me to do this i just met you like two weeks ago and you're like you're trying to do all this tax preparation like this i'm like man no this it just don't sound right it just too much sounded, too much, it's just too, too much you see what i'm saying and so i I know a lot of guys kind of following that then they look better like oh man i should have did that you know, kind of later on in life. And then, like I said, if you bless, if you're fortunate enough to, you know, reach a second contract and whatever else, you know, kind of coming to some fortune in your life and you're able to do some of those things, you know, then you try to, you definitely try to take advantage of those things as, as much as possible. But like I said, it's kind of, it's kind of, it's, it's a fine line because like I said, when you, when you're that young, you're coming out, man, you got people from all over. You never met who this, who that, and they come tell you trying to do this, and it's like, yes, I want to do it, but I'm also trying to focus on what got me here, and which was playing ball, which was you know being, you know doing well, whatever. But in, like I said, in hindsight, you obviously grow older, and you're like, well, I ain't gonna be playing this game, you know, for that much longer. So, however, you know, at some point, you know, it's gonna end, and you have to, you know, kind of make that transition to. You know, start thinking about, okay, what, what do I need to do to, you know, kind of live a life that I want to live, you know, for whatever reason. And like I said, preparing, having those, having those people in your corner that can, you know, advise you or, you know, give you pointers, whatever you, that you can call, mentor, whoever it is that can help you be successful in the life that you want to live is, is very key to me for sure. Craig, how, how did you make that transition at Merrill, where where it sounds like you were doing more of sort of the back office bookkeeping or maybe the foundational stuff versus, you know, directing capital? Because at some point, I mean, where you are today, you have the ability to help people direct or, or manage their wealth. What, what was that transition for you? And then 
then I'd love to kind of get into that next step with NKSFB. Like, what are you seeing? How are you counseling your clients? Because, you know, NKSFB is a monster. You're building a really nice program there. So what, what was that transition point for you pers- or professionally? So, you know, so selfishly, I will say this. You can do the greatest work in the world at a financial services firm, you know, your UBSs, your Merrill's, your Morgan Stanley's. Um, but if you're not investing money, you can't get paid. OK, you get paid off of it's what's called AUM, assets under management. Right. And management of assets means that you're actually putting that money into investments and you're charging a fee for that. It really wasn't a model to be the person who was the steward of someone's finances um, and to get compensated for doing all the work that I was doing, but without actually investing the money. And so I got recruited over to uh, the predecessor firm. There was a, a, a conglomerate, a Canadian financial services company um, that owned NKSFB. Um, and they also owned several of the most prominent sports agencies. They owned, um, you know, the, the, the a firm called Steinberg, Morad and Dunn, which was Lee Steinberg, Jeff Morad and David Dunn. So if you think about that, that's, you know, David Dunn founded uh, Athletes First, founded A1. Lee Steinberg, obviously, is, you know, he and Jeff Morad had, I think, like 22 starting NFL quarterbacks at one point, you know. So they own them on the football side. Jeff Morad was the number two, the second largest, and, and depending on from which year was either the first or second largest baseball agent. Um, they owned uh, Dan Fagan, who was a who was a really prominent basketball agent who since passed away. He was one of the top five basketball agents. They owned Eugene Parker's uh, sports agency, uh, football agency, Maximum Sports, which Eugene was the most prominent uh, African-American sports agent. And they also owned these business management firms, NKSF, um, and a couple of other firms. And so I was recruited away due to some relationships that I had, a specific relationship with a gentleman by the name of Kenny Felder, who's one of my closest friends, who was an agent at, uh, with Jeff Morad's uh, baseball agency. I was recruited away over there to be the liaison between the financial services business and uh, the sports agencies. They basically wanted somebody who could speak the language, you know, that was able to go out and, and talk to these athletes, about the financial services, because typically the people who are who are out there, you know, in the traditional financial services industry space, don't look like and don't speak like the individuals that they're going after. So I was kind of brought in to be that liaison between those things, and along the way, realized that hey, there's something called business management out there because you know I was dealing with with NKSF and and seeing that there's actually a business that you get paid to do all these things that I've been doing for the last five years at Merrill. Um, and there's actually, you know, a, a term for this and it's called business management. And so, you know, I ended up like most situations where you start taking, doing growth by acquisition and, and paying these entrepreneurial spirits to come in and buying up their businesses and putting them into a big corporate structure. They typically don't work out very well in the long run. And so ultimately all the sports agencies bought themselves back and then the, the business management firms then bought themselves back. And when that happened, I stayed with, with NKSF um, and, you know, been a partner there for 18 years and, and built this, this business management 
business. And the beauty of it was I was in a position to uh, not be a salesman, you know, anymore, you know, because one of the things that's really important that you kind of touched upon, Alec, when you were just speaking was the fact that, um, you know, you've got, you know, me talking to you about insurance or talking to you about tax planning. You know, I always say that in, in especially in the world of athletes, that the number one thing that they can do is to understand and learn that they're, you should differentiate between what's called a core advisor and a vendor. And it doesn't, you know, just because someone's a vendor doesn't mean that they're a predator or that they're a bad you know, person or what they're offering is, is bad. Oftentimes, some of the most important people in your life are going to be vendors. But there's a distinction between them because a core advisor is somebody who gets paid regardless of whether or not you take their advice. A vendor is somebody who only gets paid whether or not you act upon the advice that they're giving you or buy what they're selling. Okay. So if you look at an agent, right, and you're a free agent, okay, your agent is the core advisor, the teams are the vendors. So if you're trying to figure out whether or not you're going to go play for the Dolphins or you're going to go play for the Giants, okay, your agent's going to get that 3% that they get paid, regardless of whether or not you decide you're going to play for the Giants or you're going to play for the, for the Dolphins. Their responsibility is to give you advice and guidance and say, hey, there's no state income tax in Florida. So if you're going to get paid $10 million in both places, you know, you've got 9% state income tax in, in New Jersey versus 0%, you know, in Florida. So there's a significant difference in what you're going to bring home between one state or the other, playing for one team or the other. They're also going to say, but there's probably more marketing opportunities for you playing for the Giants than there are for you playing with the Dolphins. So you have to look at that side and weigh it out. Ultimately, it's your decision. You may say, well, look, I want to go play for the Falcons, okay, because yeah. I want to be back at home. That agent is going to get paid their same 3% regardless of where you play, okay? Yeah. In that scenario, you've got the Giants, the Dolphins, and the Falcons. When you go for your visit, they're going to sell you on all the reasons you want to play for the Giants, all the reasons you want to play for the Dolphins, all the reasons you want to play for the Falcons, and they don't win. They don't benefit unless you pick their team, right? Yep. So in that scenario, yep. they're a vendor. On the financial side, every person has one pot of money. They have one pie, okay? And so our responsibility, because we don't get paid off the investments that someone makes, is to help them make decisions on how they should split that pie up and divvy that pie up. We're sitting there as a core advisor. The places where you're going to put that money are ultimately the vendors. They're going to tell you all the reasons why it makes sense for you to put your money there. So the hard thing is, is when a vendor is kind of sitting in the position of a core advisor, you know, so traditionally what happens is financial advisors have, you know, are the core advisor for professional athletes. You've got somebody at a Merrill Lynch or Morgan Stanley or UBS, you know, or somewhere like that you know, or XYZ wealth management, you know, they're an RIA, they're, you know, my wealth management advisor. Those individuals are supposed to be giving advice and guidance, but there's a conflict that sits there because, Tree, if you come and you say, hey, I met this guy named Chris Benson and mm -hmm. he's got, you know, this great opportunity for me at, you know, he, 
you know, it's crazy. He owns storage facilities and they generate a ton of cash flow and they've got, you know, consistent returns, more consistent than what you're getting in the stock market. Okay. Than what you missed my advisor at, you know, whatever wealth management firm are, are telling me you can get for me off of my investment portfolio. Mm-hmm. So I think I want to put my money there, but you're relying upon that person at whatever wealth management firm to tell you whether or not reliance a good investment or not. Well, if you yep. take a million dollars of your money and you put it, take it from your investment account with them and put it in Reliant, they're no longer able to charge you a fee off of that yep. money that's there. And now that money's sitting, you know, somewhere else. Maybe good for you, but it's not good for them. And so yep. it's important to understand that although that person is really, you know, you know, wants to be positioned as your core advisor as it relates to your finances, they really are a vendor. You know, they're mm-hmm. one of multiple options of where you can put your money and make money. And you yep. really want to be in a position where you understand, is somebody a vendor or are they a core advisor? Again, doesn't mean that you can have $60 million sitting in your investment portfolio. They're really important, right? But they're a vendor, right? Yep. So it's really important to understand whether or not somebody is a core advisor or a vendor, because you have to look at the advice they're giving you and decide, are you taking that advice blindly or are you having to take it with a grain of salt, knowing that they're only going to benefit if you keep that stuff with them? Yeah, no, I agree. I think too, some people, sorry. Right? It's incentives drive behavior. I mean, in the, if the incentive of getting paid is just, I, I'm doing it because I'm here to help you, or if I'm doing it because I'm selling you something, you're going to get almost different answers. If you look at large scale data sets and almost everything, it's pretty clear when incentives are pushing one direction or the other. There's no question. Yeah. No, I agree. It's, it's, I think- it's, it's, it's fundamental. I mean, it really is. When you start looking at the reasons, you know, part of the issue, part of the problem with why professional athletes have historically been in the position that they're in financially post-retirement, this is a large piece of it. You know, it really turns into a situation that was this person, you know, think about it like this. Liquidity in a lot of situations, especially when you're talking about with with someone who may be impulsive, is a negative thing. You know, a lot of times people want to think of liquidity as, oh, it's great. It's very liquid. You know, liquidity means how quick can I get access to my money, right? Illiquidity means you can't get access to your money very quickly. There's a lot of guys out there, I guarantee, who wish that they didn't have access to their money as easily as they did. You know, if that money was put somewhere where they were getting a steady return on that money that they had access to very easily, but they didn't have access to the actual principal, they'd be in much better position than they are where you are from a financial standpoint of saying, okay, well, look, I need $3 million. I'm buying this. Okay, yeah. well, we have to just input something into the system and we're going to sell off $3 million worth of your portfolio. That money will be in your account in three days. Perfect. You can't sell a house in three days, right? You can't sell off a business in three days. Those things generate a lot of income, a lot of cash flow, and they stop you from being able to be impulsive. It yeah. really is a way, if you look at it, it's such a better model for someone who is young, impulsive, and inexperienced would be to have their money in a place where they generate cash flow, but they don't have the ability to just get access to the principal very easy. No, I agree. No, for sure. I think a lot of people, too, they when they get in those situations, too, 
and you know, good, bad, or whatever. You know, they rely so heavily as an athlete. Anyway, you rely so heavily on that that core advisor, right? For you know the advice that they're going to give you, and you know whatever you try to do, and and two, they kind of almost like they just trust blindly, like. It's like a blind trust that you just trust. And you're like, okay, I've been working with them for whatever. And you're like, well, they haven't, you know, to my understanding, they haven't, you know, lost me any money. I've, you know, earned a little money here, that and the other. And, you know, you, I, to me, you find a lot of guys that just, they stick with the guy and then all of a sudden something happened. It's like, man, I ain't learned nothing along the way of having this guy with me. Like, you know, I I think it's big for the athlete to, you know, take responsibility and, and try to learn. I'm not saying you have to be a guru at it, but, you know, you need to have some understanding of, you know, the language that's being spoken that, you know, because they're talking about your money. And at the end of the day, they're going to come back and say, well, as the, you know, like I said, like you're going to come back and be like, well, it's your money is you can do whatever you want to do with it. You know, I'm here to give you the advice of whatever it is, right? And on um, whatever, it, you know, whatever you want to do. And that's all I can do. And, you know, you kind of like essentially cut ties. Like, you know, you kind of wash your hands because you're like, ultimately at the end of the day, it's your decision. You know, right. I, all I can do is provide you the information to, so, you so know, help that, you make the decision. So so with that, think about this. Mm-hmm. If I've got, if I've got a, um, if I've got a PhD in chemistry, okay, yeah, and I'm, you know, I'm teaching, I'm teaching graduate level uh, chemistry. You know, I'm a yeah. graduate chemistry professor, okay, and you're a middle school, you're a fifth grader trying to learn chemistry, okay, and Chris is a middle school chemistry teacher, right? Mm-hmm. Got his got a degree in elementary education. Okay, happens to be thrust into teaching chemistry at middle school, understands it, you know, understands basic principles and is able to teach that. Right. And he's a very good teacher. Okay, but Chris is understanding of chemistry at a higher level doesn't go there because he doesn't have a chemistry degree. He has a degree in education and that's that's the level he's at. Now, take that and you're a fifth grader. You may relate to Chris and his teaching more than you relate to me, even though I've got a significant higher level of understanding of chemistry than Chris does. Okay. Now you can have an advisor that, you know, individuals have advisors that they pick because like you said before, you know, I related to them, you know, I felt like I could trust them. I felt like I could talk to them and I didn't feel dumb when I was talking to them. And that makes a hundred percent sense. I totally agree with that. But when I said, you know, earlier I said to you, and I said it for a reason, but you graduated, you know, you, you, you continue to learn and grow, right? Yep. You elevate. Yep. And so that's the thing. Is that advisor going to help you to continue to grow? Because if you do, you may outgrow them, yep. you know, and graduate past them. You may go from middle school to high school, yep. you know, you go from high school to college, college to a graduate level. You may go to your doctoral level. And at that point, you've got more and more sophisticated people that you're dealing with in that space, typically. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times you'll see that advisors who are only at this level 
don't want their clients to get to this level Mm -hmm. because then the client sees that they're not, you know, at a high enough level to deal with them. So a lot of times they want to keep that client pushed down. They don't want to educate you. They don't want you to understand things nearly as well, because then you might realize that they're not as sophisticated as you think they are. If they can keep you at a fifth grade level, that middle school level that they're at is going to be good enough, you know? But if you get to the high school level, you're going to look back and say, you know, think about when you were, you know, your peewee coach, right? Versus your, versus your middle school coach, versus your high school coach, versus your college coaches, versus your coaches in the pros, right? Yeah. If, if somebody kept you and think about if when you got to, to the pros, looking back on your peewee coach, right? You don't look at them with the same kind of reverence, like, wow, they knew the game unbelievably compared to what your coaches and the pros knew mm-hmm. because you graduated. You kept, you kept going up higher and higher levels. True. If they keep you down, right, financially in terms of literacy and understanding, you will constantly think that that peewee coach knows everything. And maybe that professional coach, when they start talking about schemes and things, it's like, wait a second, that's I don't understand that. That's too much stuff. I don't even want to deal with that. Yeah. So we have to all look at it and say, you know, my, my kind of catchphrase is, is education is a journey. It's not a destination. We've got, got to constantly be in the position where we're constantly learning and growing and becoming educated True. because you want to get to that Ph.D. level. True. I think, too, to kind of not necessarily push back on it, but to your point of like what you said, like of, you know, you graduate in different levels. I think that there is something to be said about like that, that foundation, because like, like I see, like you see in the league, like guys that are become professional coaches, right? A lot of times they think they done fucking invented football. Like, and it's like this game been around forever, right? And it's like, dude, you don't have to make this shit so complicated, right? And so I kind of – I try to, like, not necessarily think about that in the same way as financial, finance-wise, but it's kind of somewhat of the same principle because it's like, yeah, like you can go to these guys that are way up here, but all it's doing for you is just confusing you. Right. It's confusing. It's making it it's making it tougher. It's 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 not it's not working out for you. Right. And so, you know, kind of. To me, the best ones, they know how to, you know, adapt to each person. Right. Like, okay, this person over here, I can't I can't give them all the information because it's going to do more harm than it does good. Right. Not that I not. That's the that's the ability to relate, right? Yeah. Because you know it's one thing to have knowledge. It's and part of having knowledge, true mastery of something, yeah, is being able to. I feel like this this is probably my greatest skill set. Yeah, is being able to take things that may be perceived as complex and put it into a language that the people that I work with truly can understand what's it is yeah. as opposed to talking because it's just jargon right yeah just like when just like when when that coach calls out some some scheme or some shit and it's like man that's nothing but a whatever yeah, right yeah, yeah, you yeah. Can simplify it yeah so that's but so that shows that you have a true mastery and not that you have a true mastery and knowledge of it because you're able to take what he has said as this complex scheme and say man that ain't nothing but a blah blah yeah, blah yeah so that means that if you were in that position as that coach, 
you could create a scheme like that, but then you could take it to someone and say and make it easily for the easy for them to understand so that they can go out there, execute that, because we're at whatever level they're at from an intellectual standpoint or a comprehension standpoint yeah. that they're able to understand it. That's the key, I think. You know, sometimes people just want to show how smart they are by saying shit that nobody else knows. Exactly. Craig, Craig, how do you, so I guess thinking about that to specific things, right? Like what are the things that with your clients, what are those foundational pieces of knowledge or potentially habits that they can incorporate in their day-to-day to continue that educational journey, right? Because to Alex's point, finance can be very complex, but Alex, it can also be pretty simple, but you want to make sure you understand you are on a path to whatever goal you're trying to achieve. So what are the things that you counsel your clients to, to help with that foundational growth year over year? Because it's, it's like you said, it's a journey. It's not going to be a, I'm going to read this book once and I'm good. Yep. So I break it down. You know, I always talk about this. If you think about the things that people struggle the most with, they're probably the the two easiest things to identify and deal with. So one is weight. Okay. People struggle with weight. The reality is if you want to lose weight, all you have to do is burn more calories in a day than you take in and you're guaranteed to lose weight. It's irrefutable, right? Not easy. We've talked about this on the podcast before. (laughs) Yep. If you want to save money, all you have to do is spend less money in a day than you make in a day, right? And you are guaranteed to save money. But we all have a problem with doing it, partly because of the way that we receive the information. I don't know how many calories I'm burning from speaking during this podcast, right? I don't know every calorie that goes into my body. So if I'm trying to lose weight, I can kind of figure it out, but it's not exact, right? we don't get paid on a daily basis. We get paid on a bi-weekly basis at best. It's some, you know, if you're a football player, you know, now it's gotten a little bit better with changing it, but it used to be you only got paid, you know, for 17 weeks, mm-hmm. you know, and then good luck with figuring out how you're going to make sure for the remainder of the year that you don't overspend. I was know? on so, that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, so, so, but it's a simple concept. And so for me, putting that in financial terms, it's understanding. So it's understanding cash flow versus cash burn. How much money's coming in versus how much is going out. It's extremely important to, to be able to have an understanding and a mastery of those concepts and what constitutes cash flow and what constitutes cash burn. That's number one. Uh, number two for me, it would be the understanding of risk versus return, okay? Risk versus reward. Because, you know, I think that many people can inherently grasp the idea that, hey, this is something that's risky, you know, versus um, this is something that is deemed safe. And when they don't tend to align and balance out, when someone is telling you that, you know, owning a private jet is not risky, you know, um, you know, or that, or that to make it more simple that, Hey, you're going to get a 25% return on this investment on an annual basis. There's no risk there that doesn't line up. So understanding what typical risks are and what the typical reward is will alleviate so many issues because 
If you have a mastery of that, mm-hmm. of understanding risk and reward, it will stop so many conversations from even getting started. There are some situations where people should just know to turn and haul ass because when somebody is saying you're going to generate this money or there's no risk, unless you're getting the same amount of money that you would get by putting that money into the bank in a money market, then there is risk. You know, if they're offering you a higher return than what you get from money market, that means there's more risk than what they're telling you. Mm-hmm. I love I love the framework of a filter that when things come into your brain, you can immediately say yes, no. Like there's there's a clear path of like, like you said, does this make my cash burn exceed my cash flow? Okay, I can't do that. Done. Right. Easy. If somebody says I'm going to make you 25 percent and there's no risk in my head, that comes to me and I'm like, you're lying to me like that. That doesn't that really doesn't exist in the world. And that framework to be able to say black, white, just just automatically push things to the side that don't fit in that framework makes it so easy because of all the complexities we're talking about. There's so much out there in the financial world that you can get caught up in. This just gives you a clear path. What, how do people get in trouble? And, and the question we've, we've asked a lot of the guests who've been on has been worst investment, right? And, and Craig, maybe this is something you've done personally, but I have a feeling that just with the number of athletes you've worked with over the years, you probably got some doozies. And the specific would be fun to hear, but what usually is the problem? Like when someone does something exceptionally dumb, loses a few hundred grand or a million bucks or a couple million bucks, like what's the foundational issue? Is it just, I don't mean to say ignorance in a negative way, but but what's the why behind that? So the two things that I find, it's ego and love, okay? <laughs> the ego side is, and, and, and when I say, and I'll, I'll explain, the, the ego side is, is that you, you know, when, when you ascend as an athlete to the highest of high levels, right? And it's not only getting to the top of the profession, but typically with the athletes that we're talking about, even their physical presence, they are ascending to the highest of high level, right? Like you look at them, they're physically imposing, right? Their paychecks are imposing, you know, the way that, you know, Tree, you know, like you walk into the building when you're playing and it's almost like the people that are all working at the facility. Yeah. It's like they've been told that that our entire job and our livelihood is because of these guys. So they treat you all like royalty. Yeah. You know, yep. now there's a hierarchy to that royalty. Yeah. Right. But 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 nonetheless, you know, it's like. It's like being a, a, a Saudi prince. There might be there might be four hundred of them, and somebody's number four hundred, but they're all royalty. They are royalty. Right? Yeah. So, so there's this this sense of like, and and that didn't start when you got to the pros because everybody that's in the pros was the man in college. Yeah. They were even bigger the man in high school. They were even anointed in Pop Warner, you know, as as the man, right? And so and so there's this this hubris, this, this ego that kind of sits there of like, everything I do is great. Everything that I touch, you know, I don't fail. I don't miss every look at my life. All of this has worked out for me. And so there's this feeling that anything that I'm going into, I'm going to succeed at. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's the one side is where ego gets in the way where when everyone else says that it can work. Yeah. That's huge. So, so, you know, they've talked about Michael Jordan even right with, with 
him making all the decisions with when they were the Bobcats, uh, making all the, the decisions on who he was going to draft and things like that, ignoring the people that he put into place that he either had, you know, they spoke about him either having yes men, you know, who were just going to go along with him or it was just his decision. And even if somebody said no, he was vetoing it. That's someone who, look, I don't fail. Everything I do is right. So I'm going to get this right, you know. So ego gets in the way of making bad decisions. Mm -hmm. The second thing I said was love, right? And that comes in in, in a couple of forms and fashions. And I saw you all ch chuckling because it's like, you know, you fall in love with somebody and you just do stupid shit to make them happy. Yes, that's that's a big piece, okay? Um, but it extends to to family and friends because you've got a buddy who's been with you forever, you know, and you you want them to experience this success that you have. And so you want to put them on, you want them to have success. You want them to be, you know, not just your friend, but to be successful as well. So you're going to go into, they bring you some business opportunity and you're throwing money at it, even though probably your gut may even tell you it's not a good opportunity, but your love for them is so strong that you're willing to do it anyway. Mm -hmm. Now take that, and multiply it by a mom, dad, or a wife or a significant other, mm. right? And what she'd be willing to do. So you look at the number of clothing companies that have been started, you know, jewelry lines that have been started, swimsuit lines that have been started, trying to make your trying to make your significant other break them as a pop star, you know, so studio time that you paid for. These are all things, and Tree, I see you smiling because I'm sure the stuff you've heard in the locker room, this is all day long. Heard, you know? experienced, <laughs> all of it. <laughs> yeah. Alex, Alex start, we, we're not going to tell the story again because we probably told it on three podcasts already, but Alec tried to start a clothing line. The Ogletree suits. They were going to be right down the side. The Ogletree. There you go. Well, Look, hey, listen, it would have been a good logo, yeah. you know, but. I definitely, I definitely so, started well, down I, that path. Uh, it, it ended quickly, though. It ended quickly. Yeah. <laughs> and and the problem is, so you you make a really good point, Alec, because you did something that most people can't do. You shut the, you turn the faucet off quickly. Yeah. Most people, especially when in that love category, oh yeah, they keep it going. Yeah, yeah, you know? no, hell good no. Money after bad, they just keep throwing it out there. Hell no. And so, <laughs> what habits? What do you encourage your clients to do? to to kind of walk away. I mean, is it just a realization of you saying to them, don't let your ego get in the way of making good decisions. Don't let, you know, the people around you and the people you love. Is it, what do you encourage them to do to, again, give them that framework for decision-making? Does it go back to risk versus return, cash flow versus cash burn? I mean. So, so think about it like this, Chris, you know, we, we, in talking about, um, risk versus reward, if, if, if we're all in agreement that the, the bigger rewards you get, inherently you have to take on more risk to get that reward, then you probably should only want to take on as much risk as you need to to generate the rewards you need to. And so instead of risk-reward, we'll call it risk-return. So the first thing is understanding what type of return on my investment do I need to get in order to live the lifestyle that I need to live, right? Based, That's based the fundamental rate, right? I mean, and the first part of that is understanding what's the burn rate to live the lifestyle I want to live. 
Correct. And that's why I said those two things, cash, cash flow versus cash burn and risk reward, right? Those are the, the fundamental kind of concepts that really do go hand in hand. And so you have to know how much money you need to generate in order to live the life you need to live, right? And so that will tell you, and then you have a finite amount of money. And so that will tell you how much you need to earn off of your portfolio, your investments, whatever they are, in order to generate the cash flow to match up with the cash burn, right? And so you then only want to take on the amount of risk necessary to generate the return necessary to create the cash flow necessary to meet the cash burn. And so if you do that, you stop looking at these home runs that you're trying to hit because you don't need to hit those home runs to generate the return that you need to get to live off of the the cash flow that you're going to earn. So that's the first thing. And once you have that pot secure, then you can take excess money, additional money, right? And so now you're talking about kind of the envelope system where you're taking, okay, this is my pot of money that I know this is what I need to live my life off of, right? Okay, I've got an extra million, $2 million. Well, this is the money that you can take and use that as more of what we call aspirational, aspirational things. I want to start a clothing line, right? I want to own restaurants. I want to invest into um, a gym, you know, all these different types of things, whatever it is, that's a passion project for you. Then you use that additional capital, knowing that if it doesn't work out, you haven't put in jeopardy the lifestyle that you're living for you and your family. That's always safe and secure in this other space. Craig, what's the, what's, let's put some numbers to that, just for an example. Like, how do you counsel... One, what is a reasonable rate of return? Let's not call it risk-free because, you know, risk-free treasury right now is attractive, but it's still probably not going to support most guys' lifestyle. I mean, it depends on how right. much money they have, I guess. But what's the number you're using? And, and I'll use an example. Like, you know, I got $10 bucks in the bank or I got $10 million in net worth or however you think about it, $10 million of investable assets. What's the number you're attaching to that where you say, look, here's the, the safe bucket. You should think about, you know, five to 7% a year, seven to nine, like in your mind, what's that category of conservative safe investments? So great question. It's the fundamental. And I held up five because I didn't want you to say the number, what you did and then make it seem like I was uh, echoing what you had to say, but that 5% is different. So I, so I counsel individuals to live off of 5%. So if you've got, and so one thing is really important Chris, is to say that you have um, what you said was not 5% or excuse me, not 10 million of net worth, 10% of investable assets. Okay. It's really important to distinguish what's an investable asset versus an asset. So if you have four homes, okay, that total $10 million that you and your family live in and you bounce from one house to another, or you've got two homes, you know, you play in, um, you play in LA, you've got a $5 million there. You live in Atlanta in the off season, you've got a $5 million house there. You've got $10 million of assets. Neither of those are income producing investable assets. So neither of those should count towards this number we're talking about. I'm talking about income producing assets, either through appreciation where they're going up in value or through generation of return through rents or something like that, right? Income that they're producing. So, so, Living off of 
So you may have $20 million of assets, but only 10 million of them are actually generating income for you. The other ones you would, because unless you're willing to sell off that house in LA and that house in Atlanta, those aren't producing anything for you. Okay. So just if you think about that, so let's just say it was 5%. So 5% of the 10 million of investable assets you have would generate $500,000 a year for sake of easy math, about $40,000 a month. So let's say that, so then we would be saying you need to be living a lifestyle of $40,000 a month. Okay. In order to live $40,000 a month, you have to look at what type of income is that? Is that capital gains? Because that's going to get taxed at 20%. Is that ordinary income and dividends? Because that's going to get taxed at your tax bracket, 37%, mm-hmm. you know? So it's important to understand that as well. So, and then you have to take into account what's the third thing is inflation, right? Especially when you start looking at a professional athlete who could be 33, 34, 35 years old if they're lucky when they're retiring and having to live off of this money, you've got inflation that factors in that's going to make everything more expensive. So $500,000 a year today may be enough for you to live off of, but with inflation, 15 years from now, it's going to be essentially maybe $350,000 a year that you're living off of. And so you've got to factor that in as well. So in order to do that, you really are probably looking at, even though you're living off of 5%, you need to be generating about 8% returning your money because you think you factor in with uh, taxes and inflation, you should typically be generating about eight or 9% of your money. You know, that's, that's realistic. And so you've got to then look at, so then doing that, you look and say, okay, well, what types of investments can I put myself in that are going to have the least amount of risk that can, you know, have historically been able to generate me that eight or nine percent, kind of like storage. <laughs> yeah, no, no, that's it. Sound like they need they need to. My thing with, with that, what I was saying was, I was joking in my head. I'm like, hell, how the hell if I'm 24, 23, and you telling me all this? I got ten million dollars right now. How the hell am I supposed to understand all that right now? Just think I'm just thinking about, you know, obviously when I was coming out, just because I had this, like I said before, like at that time, that would have never like none of that never crossed my mind. Didn't think about taxes, didn't know none of that stuff like that, right? And so when you just explain that, because you have that high understanding and this is your space, right? I'm always I'm always curious just to, you know, see how people break that stuff down. Like, how do they get that? How do we close the gap in terms of like, you know, those guys that you're saying that young, immature, impulsive, whatever. How do you like how do we get them to kind of see that picture in a sense? And it's like. You got it. So so true. The problem is. Speaking about it is is. In one ear, out the other, right? You've yeah. got to show, like, essentially, like, like it's it's paint by numbers. You have to show pictures to yeah. show, hey, let's say you got ten million dollars, and let's say you spent, and and you were, and you're getting, you know, five percent, eight percent on your money, but you're spending eight hundred thousand dollars a year. You've got to physically show them this is when you're going to run out of money. Yeah, right. And then say, now let's say that you only spent this amount. This is when you run out of money, and it's like, wait a second, it never runs out. Exactly. Yeah. Now, if you spend this amount, you have to literally show them show and them. say, "You you won't believe me, but this is this is math. One plus one always equals two, right? This is math. There is no 
way to get around this. This has to be the way it is. So you either are making the conscious decision to say, screw it, I don't care, right? Or you're making the conscious decision to say, the math is never wrong, and so this is what I have to do. But you make an excellent point. And Chris, I really want, you know, I'm going to, this is this is helpful for me because getting your feedback like on these things, Alec, really helped me to, to kind of be dogmatic about the way that I approach the conversations with people because it just reinforces the fact that to me, it seems like so simple. Like, hey, I said it. This makes real easy I mean, sense. It makes right? perfect like, sense, yeah. Right. But that's like if I'm speaking Spanish and I'm fluent in Spanish and you don't speak Spanish, what I'm saying to you makes complete sense <laughs> in my head. But you're like, I don't know what the hell he's saying. What he just said. Just Al, you, you've talked about this a bunch is, I mean, part of this all, Craig, is is the athletes got to be ready to hear it too, right? They, they, they got to be in a place where it matters. And, and even the best model that you're describing that says, all right, Chris, here's when you run out of money. If I'm not ready to hear, I'm like, ah, he doesn't know what he's talking about. I'm going to play for another 10 years. So I, I think that's a huge component of this whole thing, Alec, is, and you've said it always to me from the beginning, is you got to be ready to hear as good as the wisdom can be coming from an advisor, but you got to be ready to hear it. I think that's part of the inherent challenge of talking to a 23-year-old kid. And, and I'm putting myself in that bucket, too. Craig, it sounds like you had your stuff put together. You were sitting in the front of the no. I was in the no, back of town, too, in college. <laughs> but, but I got to tell you, you know, it's, it's easier to, to, to talk about what yeah. you preach and to talk <laughs> about how you practice what you preach and from, from looking – when you're looking back on things. Yeah. I was in the same position, you know. I would not have, I would not have done well – if I would have been, you know, if I would have received a $10 million signing bonus, yeah. you know, a $15 million signing bonus. And that's, that's why I was saying that liquidity is, you know, actually a negative thing when you're young, because it, like, what do you mean? I can't go buy a car. What do you mean? I can't go buy this from mom. What do you mean? And, and tree, if, if somebody would have said, here's 10 million bucks, what do you mean? I can't retire my mom. Yeah. You know, like, how are you saying I don't have enough money to retire my mom? Yeah. Like, but the reality is, is if you're, if you're 23 and your mom's 45, 46, 47, right. Retiring her means that you may have 40 years that now you've taken on a responsibility of providing for her in addition to, and by the way, you do that because you're 23. You don't have a family. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You don't have a wife. You don't have your own kids. Yeah. So, it seems like, yeah, I got plenty of money. Yep. But now you've got your own family you've got to provide for. Yep. And then maybe you've got your wife's family that you got to provide for, yep. you know, as well. And so, but you take it on that burden and responsibility of saying, no, mom, you don't have to work anymore. You you go sit and you you do your thing. I'm good. I got you, you know. So those are the things that it is hard. And that's why for me, I think NIL for all the, I am a huge proponent of NIL because I feel like athletes deserve to be compensated for the revenue that they're generating. Okay. The scary part for me is you're now taking it and being, imagine it being 22, 23 and not knowing what the hell to do with money. Now you're 18 and you're getting this money. And what we're doing is 
we're now hardwiring ideas and habits and fundamentals into people at an even earlier age when they've got less understanding yeah. and the ability to to be able to deal with it. And so that's really problematic. Right. You know, there to be so much more education and the universities are failing these kids if they don't do it. Yeah, I agree. Let's, I agree. Totally agree with that for sure. Let's land the plane with this. You, you've delivered a lot of wisdom and I, I hope anybody who's listening to this maybe is writing it down because there's some great, like like you said, Craig, simple, not easy, but but simple, still simple. These are simple ideas. Um, you know, you're you're teaching as a as the middle school chemistry teacher right now, right? These are these are things that everybody can understand. So let's land the plane with what are the resources? Somebody listening who's not a Craig Brown client, what are some of the resources that people can go to or that you've pushed clients to over the years that have been valuable for them? Or you've seen uh, provide value to your clients. Could be a book, website, podcasts. What what types of things are you usually pushing to your clients to say, "Hey, go educate here." Sure. So you know, look. I, I wish I could show you over here on my on my desk. There, I've got that's all. You know, that's all the same book that's there. It's probably eighteen twenty copies, and it's uh, Morgan Housel's book, The Psychology of Money. Mm -hmm. um, is, is a great one. You know, I've got Morgan, oh, you say Morgan House, Morgan Housel. He spoke at, okay. you know, tree, he spoke at the, the first, yeah. uh, well, some of it that, that, that you went to in Aspen. Yeah. Um, this is, this is another book by, by Garrett Gunderson, you know, what would the Rockefellers do? Um, that really talks about utilizing insurance and creating generational wealth. Um, it's to immerse yourself in, in, you know, and these books are not, you know, these are not novels. These are not books that are talking about, you know, really complex, uh, uh, theories, but it's basic. it's getting the basic knowledge and understanding down about what it is that you're doing. You know, if you're a professional athlete, take it back, take it back or somebody who's a college athlete with aspirations to be a professional athlete. Take it back to those fundamentals when you were, you know, on the basketball court or you were on the baseball field or you were on the football field and those basic fundamentals that the coaches were teaching you. That's what you've got to be able to. That's where you should be starting with on the financial side. Yeah. You don't need to dive into the extreme, you know, you know, high level things at first. You really have to look at just the fundamentals of it. Yeah. And then the other thing that I would I would venture to to tell individuals to do is to, you know, read, um, get a website, you know, whether it's, whether it's Barron's or it's, you know, CNN money or whatever, you know, you know, whatever your, your persuasion is of, of, of what your news outlet is. And just like you go to ESPN.com every morning and kind of peruse and look around that site, go to, you know, a financial website and look at that site and just kind of read up and see the things that are there. You know, I think I think podcasts are great. I think YouTube is great. The 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 hard part is is I don't know that every person who's putting out a podcast and every person who's who's putting something on YouTube is always telling you things that that are in the best, you know, benefit for an individual. You know, a lot of it yes. a lot of people put in they let anybody do podcasts. I mean, Alec and I are on here. 
<laughs> hey, look, you all are you all are doing a, a, a huge service because it's this is this is what everybody needs to hear. I mean, it truly is. I, I commend you all, you know, extremely uh, for for what it is you're doing, and you're not doing it. You know, it's it's obvious you're not doing it in a way to be self serving. You know, which I find a lot of podcasts are, are more about. Let me let me sit here and tell you all the things that I know. Yeah. And by the way, here's here's my conference that you can go sign up for or, you know, here's my book that you can buy or here's my class that you can, you know, you can go in and let's teach you how to make money. Or, But that's that's after the equal sign. You know, yeah. if this is a math problem, you've got to get the, the pluses and minuses down first. And then once you get that, it's the solution is, OK, figuring out what you're going to do. But you've got to understand where you are and where you're trying to get to. And then you figure out what you're going to do to do that. No, I totally agree. Now, Craig, we appreciate you, man, coming on. Um, but before we let you go, where, where, like, if somebody wanted to get in contact with you, you know, whether it's Instagram, Twitter, or X, or LinkedIn, whatever it is, you know, what, what can, where can they find you at? What's the proper so, way, best so way? So it's interesting. <laughs> I always like to say, you know, you know, if, if you're in the financial space, you know, I always say the only place I ever want to see my name is on the check. Hey. Just pay me for the work I do, you know. So, um, so not, you know, not not trying to do a lot of, of you know, going on IG or, or, or X and, and, and Instagram and things like yeah. that. But C Brown at NKSFB.com. Shoot me an email if you've got a question. Um, you know, for me, this is this is personal. You know, this yep. is, uh, you know, uh, I got a ton of clients um, in 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 all sports, baseball, basketball, football, golf. Uh, but it's it's a passion of mine is, is trying to to change the narrative, change the stereotype. Agreed. I think I think athletes, because of the fact um, that there's been historically such a low rate of positive. Uh, returns, you know, that 80% broke within five years. Mm -hmm. Lynn's the, the idea that athletes are dumb and athletes are, you know, come from the hood and they, they just spend wildly and they, they do these things. But the reality is, is it's anybody who is 24 years old who's given, you know, all this money, anybody who's earning the majority of their money from the ages of 18 to 25 typically doesn't fare well, regardless yep. of what your background is and where you come from. And so it's not an athlete problem. It's an age problem. It's a youthfulness uh, issue. And so, you know, it's passion for me to to change this, to to change the narrative. So Same. it's all education. Same. I appreciate you all giving me the opportunity. No, no, we appreciate you Thanks, coming. Yeah, you spent a lot of good wisdom. And for anybody out there listening, check out, uh, you know, reach out to Craig. He's been a great resource. The, the, We've we've participated in a few of his events, and when you think about core advisor versus vendor, I put him in the core advisor bucket, right? Like he's not he's not pitching; he's saying, "Hey, think about it this way," and you know we can be here to help if you need it. But a lot of wisdom to be had. So, Craig, thanks for spending so much time with us. We'll uh, we'll get this out, and uh, I hope uh, hope everybody listening takes advantage of it. Great, thank you guys. Appreciate you. Thank you for joining us on Beyond the Game. Please like, comment, and subscribe on all platforms. It really helps others find the show.
And a special shout out to Open Heart Media who helps with the production. Check them out at openheartmediaco.com. 